Amen. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Um, this kind of last passage here, I'll just be blunt. I don't have a whole lot of light on it. Um, I'm going to kind of briefly wrap it up, um, and then we're going to take it from a very different angle, different text. Um, as we've gone through First John, um, there's been a lot of things to remind us about what we know. Um, and the last thing we mentioned yesterday, last Sunday was that the letter in summary was that it had been written that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a, that's a good thing to have an assurance of. It's written to those who already believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They have eternal life. But sometimes you and I need reminding, need some assurance, need some confidence. And so knowing that we believe, knowing that uh, we're keeping the Lord's commandments, knowing that we love the Lord, knowing that we know, love the children that are created by the Lord, those that are begotten of Him, knowing, loving our brethren, these are all good and wonderful assurances to us that we already possess eternal life. All right? So verse 14 follows that up with, and this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, and that's a key portion in this text, underline that, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us, and if we know that he heareth us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. All right, so this is, this is talking about prayer. This is talking about an assurance, a confidence that you can have that when you go to God, you can know that when you're asking things that are according to his will, he hears you and he's going to grant it. That's pretty great. What's a big kicker in that? Concerning His will, right? Often when we pray, often when I pray, I won't put this on you, I try to tell the Lord how I think it ought to be. And more often than not, it doesn't necessarily come to pass. Um, and so I think there's some growth that needs to happen in my prayer life that I need to be more molded to seeking and desiring the Lord's will be done in whatever form that comes. Right? But that's an assurance that we can have. That as His children, He hears our prayers. He hears them, and when we ask according to His will, He's going to grant them, bless them. Okay, that's, a, that's an important truth. That's something that you can have confidence. This is not, I'm going to a stranger and asking for something and I have no idea whether or not that's going to be granted. Okay, You have the right to go into the throne room of the king. Kings are not very important in our society. I get that. Even the one over in England, he's just kind of a, a figurehead. If you upset him, he can't chop off your head anymore. He used to could. right? His word was law. And so back in that day when the king was the final authority, and I'll think, going into the king's presence was a big deal, particularly when you're going to ask the king something, right? He could say yes, he could say no, he could say off with his head, right? There was a real fear and reverence of going before the king. You're going before someone who had the authority to answer your petition. I need 
something. I want something. I desire something. It's important enough for me to bring it to you. Will you grant it? With an earthly king, you got no guarantees. It could vary from his mood or what political side you're on or what his nobles think. It's just, it was up in the air. But you and I, when we have prayer, we have the direct opportunity to go to the king of all kings, the highest throne room there is. And you're not treated like a stranger. You're not someone from the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong political persuasion or whatever. You're treated as a son, as a daughter, as one who's been adopted by the king and he wants to know, what it is you ask? Well, as a daughter and son of the king, our lives should be about his business. All right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. All those things talk talking about the natural stuff you need here in this life. But if you're about the Lord's business and you're asking for things, Lord, I believe this is going to help me further your business and will glorify your name, you're, you're much more likely to have something be answered. Right? Versus asking for things that you're just going to consume upon the lust of the flesh. All right? So that's kind of the big difference. That's, the, that's that, that kicker there is asking according to his will. All right? Verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin unto death. You going to go read some commentaries on this passage? You're going to get a wide, wide range of what does that mean? What is this sin unto death? What is the life they're talking about? And depending on the person who wrote the commentary's theology, you can be radically off base, or you can be like, I don't know, maybe that could be it. I don't know. So as I I prefaced with you before, I don't have a whole lot of understanding. Um, And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to act like I do. Um, My best assessment right now is this sin unto death is probably a reference back to Mark 3, 22 um, through 30, where Jesus was casting out demons, and the Pharisees came along and says, he's working by the power of Satan. Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, another name for Satan. He's saying he's casting out demons in the name of Satan. And Jesus said, and this is where you've got that, that shall a house divided stand that Abraham Lincoln quoted? He's quoting Jesus. All those people who hang that up in schools, they don't know. (laughs) Right? But then he talks about the the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Um, And that there's an exception given for that particular one, any blaspheming, blasphemy, blasphemy is to vilify, to speak evil of, to say something that which is good is evil. It says you can do that against the Son, and it'll be forgiven. It says against the Holy Spirit, there was an exception. It was not going to be forgiven. It was not going to be forgiven in this life or the next, and those that are subject to it are subject to damnation. Okay. Now, all that sounds very scary. It is. But for you as a child of God, it isn't. 
He paid for every single one of your sins. And is there anything that can separate you from the love of God? No. Including yourself. There's no asterisks on the sins that are bigger than Jesus could pay for. And so, I don't believe it is possible for Jesus to lose a single one of his sheep. And so I don't believe that any elect child of God is capable of that particular sin. Okay? And so when we're talking about a sin that's unto death, um, that's what I think is being referenced there. That um, that's not one that God is going to answer that prayer. Okay? If he said that that was unforgivable, um, then the person who is committing that, um, he's not going to grant you the life for them. That's there's going to be the, the ultimate death. Again, this is heavy, weighty stuff, and I've spent a whole lot of hours chewing on it, and I, I, don't, I don't have great insight. And so I apologize for even bringing it up, but we're going through the text, and I wanted you to know where I'm at. You know, Ten years down the road, we may look at this, and we may have some additional information. Y'all can chew on it for the next few months and come back and let me know what you think. Um, the general point, that aside, is that we're to pray for one another. All right? When we're seeing your brothers and sisters sin, it's not to put them up on a cross and crucify them. All right? Not, not with your mouth, not in your heart, not in your head, but it's to lift them up in prayer. Encourage them, strengthen them. Now, speaking the truth in love, there are, there are many ways in which we can try to help and encourage and recover one another when we start sinning. Okay? It's not to be swept under the rug and pretend like it doesn't happen. It's not to say, well, that's not really a sin because so-and-so did it. No, it's still a sin. Right? But the general point is there is, is praying for one another, that it's important. Um, and, you know, our prayer should be for the repentance for the renewal, for the conversion. You know, conversion happens more than once. I know that. Sometimes we think about, oh, he's converted. Yeah. Turn again. Turn again. Turn again. Every day, we need to turn again to God. Right? Every day, we get a little off skew. Right? We're kind of like a, the sundial. You know, we start off pretty straight. And you give us half an hour, we're, <laughs> we're off target. Turn again. Turn again. All right? So if you see your brother sinning, um, ask. Ask the Lord. Ask for, for life for them, for that repentance, for that renewal, right? Not continuing to live as unto death, right? There was a discussion over in, I think it's Timothy, talking about widows and that the younger ones, they should, be, they should remarry, right? And the older ones, the ones who are going to be basically committing their lives to just serving Christ for the rest of their life, says, that's good, unless you start down that path and you abandon it. It says, in that case, that's when you're living in pleasure. It says that you're dead even though you live. Okay? There is a death that we can go through when we're walking away from God and we're just indulging rampantly in sin. We don't want that. Right? When we see that in our own life or we see that in our brothers and sisters' life, we need to be praying for them that there will be a renewal, a restoration of walking in the path of light and righteousness. And what's this whole book been about? I write these things that you sin not, that you walk in the light with the Lord, that you have fellowship one with another. Right? All these things tie together that you keep His commandments and that you love one another. All right? What's a form of loving one another? When you see someone doing wrong, 
You're praying for them. Praying for the Lord will give repentance. Now, can you and I change individuals' hearts? No. We can speak the truth in love. We can do what's right. We can model the right behavior, not being hypocritical of, well, that's, you're doing wrong over there. I'm going to continue doing it over here in secret. You're not going to know it. Right? Living consistently, walking and talking the same way. But ultimately, the change in behavior is going to have to come from a change internally, and the Lord's going to have to address that. Okay? All unrighteousness is sin. You ever wondered what the definition of sin is? There you go. All unrighteousness is sin. Well, who's righteous? God's righteous. God is holy. That is his characteristic. He is righteous. He is upright. He is holy. He is pure. He is just. He sets the standard. Men didn't. Righteousness is not a social construct that men can adjust and adapt over the years. It is a fixed point because God doesn't change. So all unrighteousness is sin. That's defined by Him. All right? There is a sin that's not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. All right. Now, this verse... We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Does that mean, can it mean, that once you're born again, you will never sin again? No. We know that from our own lives, and we know that from Scripture. Just going back into chapter 2, I write these things that you sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So we know that there will continue to be instances of sin in our life. Will, however, you as a born-again child of God Go back and wallow continuously in that dumps of depravity of which you came before you were born again. That pursuing the lust of the flesh with unfiltered, unregard, without conviction. Right? Will you do that? No! Right? The Lord loves you too much to leave you in that spot. Okay? And so the manner of our life, the pattern of our life is not going to be that gross indulging in sin anymore. Will you make mistakes? Yes. Will you be convicted of them and repent of them and strive to forget, not forget, but not repeat them? Yes. And that pattern will go over and over and over again. But that's very different than just like, I'm actively in rebellion. I don't care what you say. This is what I'm going to do and I'm going to call it right. Very different scenario, right? So that's what, that's what my understanding is. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God, so you've been born again, you have that Holy Spirit dwelling within you, keepeth himself. That's a matter of self-discipline. We know that God is keeping us safe in his hand. Right? We cannot be separated from his love. There's also a guarding of self. Right? If before you were born again you struggled with alcohol, should you go spend the night at the bars? No. If before you were born again you were tempted to whatever particular sin... Should you put yourself in that situation so it's readily available? No, right? That's a part of guarding yourself, keeping yourself, not setting yourself up for failure, right? If you don't study for the test, what happens on the test? You fail. You set yourself up for failure, right? You didn't do the things that you needed to do in advance, or you didn't keep yourself away from things that you need to keep yourself away from. That's the idea, is that you as a born-again child of God, you have actions, that you can take and actions that you can avoid each day. And so that's that that responsibility is upon you. 
Right. He's given you new life. He's created you a new creature under good works. And now you need to go about his business. Okay? He that's begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. That's comforting. Who's that wicked one? Satan. Right? Satan cannot take you from Christ. Alright? I know folks can sometimes get distressed by Satan. He is not a peer with Christ. Right? He is nowhere near and equal. The one that you work for, Jesus Christ our Lord, Savior, King of all kings, far outranks this little false accuser. Right? Now, that little false accuser has way more power and intellect than you got. Or I got. Don't get me wrong. He's an adversary. He's a foe. But he can't go any further than Christ allows him. He cannot take you. He cannot destroy you. He can lay out traps, and us in our foolishness can walk into them. Alright? That's what it means. He touches him not. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's the default. The default is wickedness. Unless Christ has given you new life, unless the Lord has born you again, unless you have been reborn by the Holy Spirit, the default is wickedness. And that's what you'll see. This whole corrupt creation. Right? That's why there needs to be a new heaven, a new earth, one that is without sin, because even creation itself has been corrupted. You get distressed. Why is the state of the world so much in turmoil? Why are people doing awful things to each other? Why and why and why and why? Sin! And people are inherently evil. <laughs> people don't want to hear that. No, I'm, 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 I'm naturally good. Nope. You're not. If there's any good in you, it's only by God's grace. And you should be praising Him. Because you didn't put that there. Okay? The whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. Wow! You have an understanding. We're not just ignorantly floating here. You've been given the Word. You're in a house where fellow believers come and fellowship. You've got you know, a man who tries to, to pastor right, and lead you as an under-shepherd, pointing you to the great high shepherd. Says, He's the example. We know that the Son has come. How do you know that the Son has come? Because He's given you the Holy Spirit to believe that He's come. By intellectual arguments, I can't convince a single person. Right? This is not a rational uh, mental exercise. This is only revealed by the Holy Spirit. And guess who gets the credit in that? God! Right? And so we know that the Son has come, and He's given us an understanding. Because how do you have that understanding? He gave it to you. And we know that He is true and that we are in Him that is true. And all this, this letter has been about dwelling, abiding, right? You've got a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there's also the maintaining your life and guarding yourself so that you're walking in the light where the Lord is, right? We know that He's true. He's righteous. He's holy. He doesn't change. And we are in Him that is true, even His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. There are false gods of many. 
This is the true one. This is the honest one. And eternal life. Unending life. Eternal life is to know the Father and to know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, little children, keep yourself from idols. All right? So you've been revealed with an understanding of He that is true, that you're in Him that's true, the true and living God and eternal life in His Son, and so now you need to guard yourself against every corruption from that truth, every distraction that's going to make you want to do something different <coughs> other than putting God first. All right. So that's a little bit of light I got on the rest of the chapter. I want to go down to Psalm 90. What's your transition there? Well, the end of the chapter is talking about prayer. And Psalm 90 is a prayer written by Moses. <clears throat> Short Psalm, 17 verses. Prayer of Moses. In my Bible it says, A prayer of Moses... The man of God. I'd like that written on a tombstone. That's a pretty good summary for any child of God and the way we want to live our life. Or we should live our life that would be described and identified as being a man or a woman of God. So it's a prayer. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the Lord. Verse 1. Lord. L-O-R-D, all caps. Jehovah, the eternal God, the I am, the ever-present, always existent. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, Moses was born when they were in captivity in Egypt. And before they went to Egypt... They didn't have a dwelling place in Canaan. They were pilgrims. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were living in tents. And yet the Lord has been the constant. He's been the refuge. He has been the place for all generations. Time without end. And that's, that's kind of a theme of this, is time. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Not the temporal situation we find ourselves in now. Not our physical house or wherever, apartment or whatever we have. It's the Lord. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever Thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. You ever think about the mountains being formed? That's not something I, I, I got a visual of when I'm, I'm reading in Genesis. Go over to Genesis real, real quick. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He creates light. Right? In verse 6, it says, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters. You've got the, the sky and the universe. And then about verse 9, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. All right, we know that you 
got tectonic plates now that are shifting and smashing into each other. And some will go up and some will go down. You have new mountain chains slowly forming. Ellie and I learned a little bit about mountains. Little mountains. Right? We were looking at Everest and it was like 10 times as high as the little mountains we were hiking up. And he and I were struggling to walk up a mountain with a path. But our God is so big, he caused these mountains to come up out of the water. I mean, he had a sphere of water, right? That was created heavens and the earth. He had a ball covered with water. I don't know if you've ever moved any dirt by hand or by wheelbarrow or by, you know, front loader. That takes a little time, a little effort. And yet for our God, it's causing these mountains to shoot up out, right? So Everest is coming up. Right? Beneath that, you know, beneath the water level, you've got, what, mile, two miles down to the, the seafloor? So the Lord is taking and changing and molding this, all of this word, right? How big is your God? He's not big enough. I say that as in your perception of it is not big enough. He's bigger than we can perceive. You've been our dwelling place before the mountains were brought forth. Imagine these mountains shooting up out of the water. And the water having to recede back into these massive troughs. Or ever thou form the earth and the world. So he's going back. You know, you're on verse 9 where you got dry land. He said, well, before that, before you made... The ball in the water before you made the universe, anything in the universe. You were there. From everlasting to everlasting. You got a timeline, right? One, two, three, four. That way it goes. Infinity. Right? Timeline, negative one, negative two, negative three. Infinity. That's the idea is that God, you've been from everlasting, from forever and ever and ever and ever, and you'll go for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What's his name? Jehovah, the eternal God, the always present, the eternal ever present God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The word God is El, it's abbreviation for Elohim. Strength, the Almighty. Sometimes that would be used for you know a general uh, deity, idols, right? They could have that name too. Remember, we just talked about the true God, the true and living God, the eternal God, right? Thou art God. Oh, is there any other? Moses grew up in Egypt. He'd been introduced to a whole whale of a lot of gods. And he'd also been introduced to what this God can do. I mean, he whooped a strong nation. So there was no doubt who was in charge. Could any of those gods in Egypt stand up to him? Not a chance! No one had any might or power to stand up to him or say, whoa, stop it. Right? And so they have been brought out by the power of this God, this eternal God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return, ye children of men. He's eternal and he's powerful. To turn men to destruction. That word destruction means crush to powder. 
Where did we come from? Dust. Dust. This destruction is to be pulverized back to dust. Return, ye children of Adam. That's what that men there, that particular word, that men, is Adam. Adam's formed from the dust, from the clay. And that's in our death where we return to. It's talking about the God's power to send men, nations, peoples to death. Does God die? No! He's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. What we're getting here is a scale of comparison. Who am I addressing versus who am I? I'm just dust. And he has the power to send me and all other people back to dust. If you look at Psalm 104, verse 29 and 30, it talks about this context of animals. It says, Thou hidest thy face, and they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, and they die, and return to the dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. Thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. Those who will try to say that the Lord just spun up the universe like a top, and now he's taking a hands-off approach, ignore Scripture. Not only is he the creator, he is the sustainer. If he takes away the breath from animals and they die... What does that mean? That every breath that you've been given has been a gift from God. Have you nothing to be thankful for today? We've made it through another year. How many breaths have you been blessed with over the past year? Last minute. The last hour. The last day. The last week. He is sustaining you. He is your dwelling place. Right? He is the creator God. He is the sustainer God. So let's talk more about scale. A thousand years in thy sight, again, we're addressing God, are as, are but as yesterday when it is past. Not just a yesterday in theory, but a yesterday that's already come and gone. How long did yesterday take for y'all? When you were going through it, it took 24 hours. Now that you've already gone through it, does it seem like that long? No, it's just... Right? And in God's eyes, that's a thousand years. Now, is this hard to wrap our head around? Absolutely. That's why Moses is going to give us more than one illustration. God inspiring Moses. So first one was yesterday as it's past. Right? Days that have already come and gone don't feel very long. Right? And yesterday's fresh. Like you, you still know the details of it. If you asked me about two weeks ago, huh? you know, my mind's so feeble, I probably couldn't tell you what happened. But this is yesterday. But it's already passed, and it's just a short time in perspective in our memory, right? But even shorter than that, a thousand years is as a watch in the night. What's a watch? Watch is when you're on guard duty, and you've got to get up for a certain number of hours and be the sentry on the wall and make sure nobody attacks you. Right? That's what the purpose of the watch. You're standing watch, right? Jesus, when he was walking on the water to the disciples, he came to them in the fourth watch. Right? So I don't know how many watches we're talking about, but you divide the night period into at least four periods. Is that a whole day? 
No, that's a shorter section of just the night. So a fourth of the night. Not even the whole yesterday. But a thousand years is just as a little section in the night. Right? Thou carriest them away as with a flood. Y'all ever seen a flood? No? It's pretty impressive. We had a river behind my house when we were growing up. And when it was in flood stage, I mean, it could come up 10, 12 feet, overflow the banks, and you'd see basketballs going down the river. We were south of DeKalb County. There was a lot of basketballs. But you'd also see whole trees. Right? The force of water is amazing. We don't give it enough credit. If we don't you know, treat an ocean with enough respect, you can have you know, a riptide take you out, and there's nothing you can do about it. All right? there's, the power of water is, is amazing. And that's the illustration that's being used here is that nothing's stopping that tree from going down that river. The force of the water is carrying it. It says the Lord is carrying them away those thousands of years as with a flood. Right? Think about back then. If you're moving something, if you're moving it with animals, what do animals do? They get tired. They wear out. They go slow. Right? And so you've got the illustration here from this force that has no fatigue, but it carries it around rapidly. Right? That's how quickly thousands of years pass with the Lord. Okay? Carries them away with the flood. They are as asleep in the morning. All right. How long did it take you to dream last night? Right? Hardest part is falling asleep. But once you're asleep, what immediately happens? You wake up and the night's gone. Right? So you've got the whole yesterday. you got just a little watch in the night. You know, a few hours where you're awake. And it says, nah, it's really just like that moment that you don't really even perceive it because you were asleep. How long that dream took you. The scale between what is thousand years to God versus just an instant for us. Okay? And then the final illustration is like grass. Grass on harvest day specifically. In the morning, you got the dew, the grass has grown up, it's green, it's fresh. By the evening, here comes the sickle, it's cut down, and it's withered. Life cycle of the grass is gone in a day, right? It was green and growing before. Now it's been cut down and it's withered up. Right? Just like that. Right? That's our God. That's who he's addressing, right? We haven't even really gotten any prayer requests, right? He's just talking to God and getting a proper perspective on how big, how eternal, how wonderful, how powerful is this person, this this God that he's addressing. For we are consumed by thy anger. This goes back to verse 3. Thou turnest a man to destruction, and say, Return, ye children of men, for we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we are troubled. All right. Have we, in our study of numbers, seen how often in the Lord's wrath portions of those children wandering through the wilderness were completely consumed? Happened a bunch, right? whether it was plagues or fiery serpents, um, earth coming up and swallowing them flat. Right? They were consumed. They consumed. You, you're dead, right? But not only that, 
if you survive that by your wrath, you're still troubled. Right? They disobeyed at the edge of Canaan, and so they had troubles. They had to go spend 40 years wandering. Those that survived it still had to go on the journey. Right? If you were 20 years and up, you weren't going to survive. You were going to be consumed. All right? The rest of y'all were troubled. Consumed by that anger and by that wrath. Is our God holy? Yes. Does he like sin? No. He's righteous. He's holy. He will not abide sin. And can you hide it from him? Not a chance. You may be able to hide something from mom and daddy. You may be able to hide something from peers, boss. But you can't hide it from him. Verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Thy countenance is the face. It's like saying, okay, you've got your secret skeletons in the closet. God has taken them over here and he's setting them out on the front counter. And now we're looking at them. All right? He's the discerner of your heart, of your thoughts. There is no secret sin with God. That's kind of an oxymoron or paradox. You may have things where you deceive your own self and you don't see your own sins. You can pray the Lord show us those. But when we're confessing our sins to Him, we're not giving Him new information. We're coming to that point where we agree with Him. We're acknowledging that what we did was wrong in a sin. For all our days are passed away in wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. All right, so you've gone from this massive scale up of the duration of God and how a perspective of a thousand years is so small with Him, and now you get down to us. Because yeah. our whole lives, well, we're full of iniquity, and our days are spent away in Thy wrath. The Lord dealing with us and that whole time all of our years is spent as a tale that is told all right ever had somebody tell you a good story maybe they went on 10 minutes maybe 30 minutes maybe you had one of those bards of old and they come and sing for a couple hours but eventually what happens with that tale it ends and when it's told it's pretty short so that's our whole life summed up in just a little bit of a a tale, an anecdote. The years of our, the days of our years are three score and ten. That I means a score, that's twenty. Three times twenty, sixty plus ten, that's seventy. Here's your math lesson. Average life, about seventy years. And if by reason of strength they be eighty years, four score years, yet is the yet is their strength labor and sorrow, and is soon cut off, and we fly away. You know, this was written, I don't know, 25, 2600 years ago. You know what the average life expectancy around the world is still today? 73. <laughs> all of our advances in medicine, all of our better food, whatever, in, in various countries, it's longer than others. But still, is this still true today? Eternal, everlasting, everlasting. 80 years. Maybe 90. And how are our days spent? In labor and sorrow. <laughs> For it is soon cut off and we fly away. 
you have the comparison to God, the eternal, the righteous, the perfect, and us with our iniquity and our sin and the labor of this life and the toil and the sorrow, the corruption by sin. We getting the scale here? No. Maps are kind of a thing of the past, right? I was looking for a physical map when we wanted to go on that hike, right? I wanted something zoomed in so I could see individual contours and some topography, you know, maybe an inch, like a quarter mile, right? That's, that's pretty zoomed in, right? If you go on Google Earth and you start zooming out and you got your scale, you know, the map key of the scale, you know, one inch, quarter mile, you start zooming out, pretty soon you could have that half inch, cover the whole country of the United States, right? It's just your perspective. Keep zooming out. You can have that half inch cover the distance between Earth and the moon. Keep zooming out. You can have that between Sun and Pluto, even though it's not a planet. Keep zooming out, and that could cover the whole Milky Way galaxy, right? That's the idea between scales, right? How could I find that quarter inch, that quarter mile, rather, that I was so concerned about on the Appalachian Trail, how could I see that if I'm looking at a map of the whole universe? Couldn't, couldn't, right? That itty bitty little bit in time is in comparison to what God sees and knows. Right? Our entire life is so zoomed in, so small, that it doesn't even show up as a dot, right? I may have done a bad job of trying to visually represent what I'm seeing in my head here, but the idea is that if you have that number line and you put one, two, three, out to 70, put a thousand years on top of that. What does that thousand years look like? Big, right? It's off the charts. All right? We'll zoom out until you see a million years this way and a million years that way. That big thing that was off the charts is now suddenly much, much shorter. Now go for... 250 billion, 250 billion, it's not even a pinprick. Okay? This is how time is relative to God's perspective and our perspective, right? You're in kindergarten. You're so excited. You've, you've gone. You're, you're five years old. You're doing your first schooling. It takes a year. Wow, that took a long time. That was 20% of my life. You get to your 40. How long is a year? There ain't 20% of your life anymore. Right? It's more like 2%, right? 140th, right? And what do they say is that as you get older, those years start clicking off faster, right? Well, each one represents a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller percentage. So in a percentage between everlasting and everlasting, 10,000 years is nothing. It's next to zero. It's infinitely... Small. You say, Brother John, why are you going through all this exercise, this math? Because this is how big God is. This is who we're interacting with. This is not, you know, your your friendly uncle that you're going to visit and ask for favors, right? This is the God of all creation who infinitely loves you and sent his son to die for you, that you have permission to the uh, ability to come into his presence and ask petitions of him. And knowing that he has the power, the sustainability, the 
endurance to grant them according to His will. Whereas we, we're sin-cursed. We're short-term. Pretty much everything that we do is, is, is vanity. It's going to go back to dust. right? You fast forward 100 years from now, all of the labors that we spent so much caring about this past year, who's going to know about any of them? All those worries, all those strifes, all those cares. I mean, 100 years, for you and I, that feels like a long time. But in comparison to God, it's, it's nothing, right? It's soon cut off and we fly away. Does it mean to be cut off in the Bible? I mean, it means you're dead. That's not to give away the ending here, but we're all going to die. <laughs> all right? And for Christians, that doesn't have to be scary. In fact, that's the happy ending. <laughs> And we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Who can really understand the scope of God's anger towards sin? You've never felt it. You've had some divine loving chastening from your Heavenly Father, but you have never felt this full, unmitigated wrath of God against sin. The only one who has yet. And that's our Lord. He bore it for you and for me without filter, without I mean, God didn't pull any punches. Jesus bore it all. And for those that He didn't bear it, they will bear it all, and it'll take an eternity to bear it. So who knows the power of that anger? Nobody but Himself. Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Can you fear God enough? No, you can't. You can't hold Him in high enough regard with reverence. And just like you can't do that, you can't understand how big that wrath is. So here's our request, verse 12. All this has been glorifying God, acknowledging who He is. You know, that's, that's a big part of glorifying God. Acknowledging that He is what He says He is, as revealed in here, as opposed to some minute fashion that we build in our heads. So what's our request? So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. When you were a teenager, or when I was a teenager, there is a tendency to act and feel like you're going to live forever. Right? That the world can't catch you, like the cops can't catch you, like there's, there's just, you're invincible. And then you hit 25 and your brain finishes developing and your insurance rates go down and you start driving slower and eventually you get married and you have kids and you slow down and you start hurting your back, tying your shoes, and right? You realize, I'm not invincible. I will not live forever. Death is coming. Right? So teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Rather than living like God has promised you tomorrow, because He hasn't, start living like today's your last one. How will I serve Him now? 
So that's in the immediate sense. The other sense is that if the average life expectancy is somewhere between 70 and 80 years old, you got a finite amount of time. Use it wisely. Time is a finite resource. You cannot go buy more. Right? Only the life that he's given you can you use in his service, so use it now. How much time over this last year have we wasted? Oh. Capture it back. Well, I can't capture last year's time. But I can be more diligent in how I use this year's time. On serving myself? No, I did that last year. Let's try something different, right? On glorifying this God that's this great. With this little bit of precious time that he's given me, let me use it in his service. Teach us to number our days. Why? That we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Applying your heart unto something. And this is something of value. This is not just you know, building up knowledge for ego's sake. This is applying your heart unto wisdom. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Where does wisdom start from? It starts with God. Serving God, fearing Him. They're not wisdom apart from Him. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. I don't know which particular trial Moses was going through here, but he was still in the midst of it. Right? There's destruction. Our iniquities have been made plain before God. God would tell them when you've done wrong. That golden cow, go down, for they have departed already away from me. They had just gotten to Sinai. Right? And here they are departing into idolatry. How's a bookend for their trip? How does it end at the end of their trip? Forty years later, 38 years later, they're on the border there of Moab on the plains, and here come the Midianite ladies. Hey, y'all come over to our sacrifices. It ends in idolatry. Whether it's the idolatry of your own heart and their own imagination from what they'd seen in Egypt, here they are creating these golden cows. Let's worship them so we can go about what we want to do. Or at the end of the trip, hey, there's some pretty ladies. We like to do um, things, and so we're going to hang out with them. That was the bookend of that hiking trip. How's First John in? Little children, keep yourself from idols. So they're, they're in the midst of some uh, chastening, some wrath. And so his request here is, how long? Lord, when is it going to end? <laughs> Return, O Lord, how long? Let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Lord, show us mercy. Early. <laughs> satisfy us, satiate us, give us what we need. Satisfy us with your mercy, even though they're full of iniquity. And now, Moses is writing this before the full revelation, before it's been revealed what that form of mercy embodiment is going to be. He knew, Moses knew that there was going to be one who was come after him. There's going to be a prophet like unto him. But he didn't know the full story. Y'all know mercy's name. Y'all know when he came into this earth and performed the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, 
that in his mercy you would live. You've been satisfied with the mercy of the Father by the sacrifice of the Son. So, oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses couldn't fully get it yet. He knew he was dependent upon God. He knew that he was the dwelling place from eternity to eternity. We need to come from you. Satisfy us with your mercy. Y'all, the mercy has already been satisfied. And so you've got something to rejoice in. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Not just the days when the temporal stuff is going right. Not just on the days when you don't sin. Not just on the days then whatever arbitrary box you check up to is okay, I can be happy in the Lord today. All your days. Right? Because the Lord has given us an understanding about who His Son is and what He's done and that we're in Him and that we'll abide in Him and that we'll be with Him for eternity. This is eternal life. You have something to rejoice in. You have someone to rejoice in and to be glad all your days. Should we be the happiest people on the planet? Yeah! It's when we get a sorry perspective that we get in the mully grubs. Right? We quit looking at the Lord, at the author and finish of our faith, of what He's done and the truth that He's revealed, and we start looking at the ruts in the road. Make us glad according to the days wherein Thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou has afflicted us and the years in which they have seen evil. Lord, we've had the hard times. We'd like the good times now. Do you have reason to have gladness now? Yeah, you do. In comparison... When you're in heaven and in glory and that time thing just keeps going on and 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 going on. That 70, 80 years of sin and sorrow and labor will scale down to nothing. So that the joy, the peace, the harmony and the unity with God can't be compared to the little bit of sorrow that we've experienced here. There's no comparison. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. Moses is asking for something to happen. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. You know what? I think from our perspective, that has happened. That work, that most important work that's been done ever was the work of Jesus Christ. And the glory that was revealed unto the children of men, it's Jesus Christ, the embodiment, the, the man, the God, there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Men got to see Jesus with some of His glory. It was revealed just a little bit. One day there'll be a revealing where there's no filter. There's no holding back. Right? The brightness of the noonday sun was how Paul described it, right? The people around him heard a voice. He couldn't understand what was going on, but it was so bright. It was like looking at the sun. Our mortal eyes can't handle that. We need better eyes. All right? And let the beauty of the Lord our God, Jehovah, 
the beauty of the Jehovah, the eternal, eternal God, our God, our Almighty, be upon us. Is the beauty of the God upon you today? You've got the indwelling Holy Spirit if you've been born again. It is the Spirit of truth that is within you and teaches you about Jesus Christ or reminds you about Jesus Christ and directs you to Jesus Christ. The beauty of the Lord is upon you. Let the beauty of the Lord be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Why would the Lord establish our work? If we're doing His work. If we're doing the things that please Him, that are according to His will. I can ask that. Lord, establish this because it's in your service. Lord, if this is not what you want me to do, show me something else. Right? Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Too often we ask the Lord to establish the work of our hands for our, our own self. And then we get frustrated when those prayers aren't answered. But if you're putting the Lord's work and doing His work and serving Him, then you can have boldness when you go to ask Him, Lord, I don't know exactly how you would have this to go, but I know that this glorifies you, and I'm going to pursue this. And Lord, I'm trusting you with the results. I'm trusting you to um, bless the efforts, and I'm trusting that you'll be glorified by it. Those are good things to pray. Can we, can we grow in our prayer life? Yes. So hopefully this has given you a few things uh, to think about as we've gone through this particular prayer of Moses. I mean, Moses is a man of God. And yet he spent more than half of this talking to God about God and how good he is and how big he is and how eternal he is. I thought I wanted to get, but if you zoom out from this psalm, it starts off with the scale of of perspective, the eternal God, the unchanging, everlasting God, and goes to His might. He's all powerful. Who can't abide sin. He's holy. He has wrath and anger and judgment against sin. He's got all knowledge because nothing's hid from him. All of those things. His power, his wrath, his knowledge, his eternalness are beyond our comprehension. And so there needs to be some humility when we go into his kingdom when we go into his throne room, if you will, when we go to pray, of recognizing that this is one that is greater than I. And yet one who knows all that I've done, and yet he still invited me here, and he wants to hear from me, and that when I ask things according to his will, he will grant them. Like a king giving a petition, Lord, I ask that this be done. Well, this one's one of mine. Because guess what? The king's there, but the son's also sitting there. Right? 
Hear this petitioner. Hear this servant. This is one of mine. Father, this is one that you gave me. Yes, I know this one had a lot of debts against him, but I've paid them all. Hear him. This one is about your business, Father. Grant this petition. He's interceding on our behalf. That's a pretty good counselor. That's a pretty good advocate. Who can argue against that? Not Satan. He can't lay a finger on him. He can't say, well, yeah, well, the Lord missed a spot. Nope. Well, the Lord really doesn't love you because he knows what you've done. He knew what you did and he loved you anyway. And he paid for you. He paid for your debt. So my hope is that over the next year we hold prayer in a higher regard. Not as something to get through, but as an opportunity to speak with our Heavenly Father and learn more about who our Heavenly Father is. Again, our concept of Him is too small. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our focus. If you were invited to have a conversation with the president, would you wait until you were half asleep and in your PJs and just kind of like, hey, what's up? And then nod off during the conversation. <laughs> I'm not saying don't pray before you go to bed, but if that's the only time you pray, that's the only way you pray, are you showing much respect to who you're speaking to? Is he worthy of our respect? Yeah. Thank you. The Lord bless you. Anybody have an unbelievable thing?